Hello, I'm Howard Miller, the contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we're very pleased to welcome you to today's podcast. It is on one of the most, perhaps the most, complex and important issue that will be faced during this coronavirus crisis, which is insurance coverage for the massive losses that so many businesses and individuals uh, have, have had. Those of you who are listening to this who may want CLE credit, let me say at the beginning, you can get CLE credit through the Daily Journal. This podcast is available outside the Daily Journal paywall. You don't have to be a subscriber. You just, if you want to listen to it again or do the CLE, you just go to dailyjournal.com or as an alternative, dailyjournal.com slash podcasts. This podcast and all previous podcasts will come up with a link and an access to CLE course questions that you can fill out, send into the Daily Journal, carry through, and obtain CLA credit. So for those of you who want CLA credit, this is something that the Daily Journal is happy to provide, even though access to this podcast is outside its paywall. Today's subject, as I said, is perhaps the most important and complex issue we may face, one of them anyway, during this crisis. And our guest is Judge Rex Heisman. Judge Heisman, I'll t- ask him more about his background, but he is retired from the Superior Court, where he served for many years, now a mediator and arbitrator at JAMS, and is the co-author of the Rudder Insurance Litigation Trial Guide for California. Judge Heisman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Howard. Pleasure to be here. Well, tell us more about your background, and then we'll start to talk about the subject. I started in the insurance uh, litigation world a little bit over 40 years ago, uh, and at that time I did a lot of uh, defending insurance companies in bad faith litigation. I did quite a bit of that for 10 or 11 years, and then I started uh, representing developers in, in connection with their insurance coverage issues in construction defect litigation. So while my background is more insurer-oriented, I do have a policyholder uh, background. As Howard pointed out, I'm one of the co-authors of the Rudder Group's uh, a practice guide on insurance litigation. Besides that, for 12 years, I was an adjunct professor at Loyola Law School, teaching uh, insurance law as well as business torts. I, I became a judge of the L.A. Spear Court in 2005, uh, left, retired from there a little bit over nine years ago, and have been of jams for the last five years. So that's generally my background, Howard. Thank you. Now, the subject we're going to talk about, one of the reasons it, it's so interesting is because the enormous losses run up against complexity and precedent here. We've dealt with other examples like this uh, in our history uh, to show what's at issue. We'll talk a great deal about the technical background and about the precedents and about the existing law. But this is one of those circumstances where the existing law may not be the entire guide to what cases are likely to wind up deciding and what the appellate courts are likely to decide. We've gone through this many times in huge crises where the law dramatically changed the gold clause cases constitutionally and many other times where there were limits on existing remedies because of extreme economic distress. And one of the most examples, most interesting examples of that for California, especially now with the Supreme Court that has in other contexts not been hesitant to overall precedent, is to look back to a leading California precedent on this, which may give us a sense of what may happen here. 
Judge Eastman, we've talked, and you made me aware of a 1909 Supreme Court of California case involving the San Francisco fire. And I think that's a good thing to discuss to give a sense of how this the kind of issues that evolved? Well, back then, uh, a lot of the coverages that uh, individuals and businesses had were fire insurance policies. Uh, Fire policies were uh, one of the first cornerstones of insurance in general, as as long as maritime. But the issue in in the case that Howard mentioned uh, related to the San Francisco fire, and back then, fire policies, uh, many of them had exclusions for earthquakes, because let's face it, earthquakes had been around in California for many years. And so when the case got up to the California Supreme Court, uh, the argument by the insurance companies was, well, the earthquake uh, caused all this stuff. And the California Supreme Court uh, concluded that, yes, the earthquake may be started, but the major loss was due to the fire, which was true, and therefore these fire insurance policies uh, at least to some degree, have re- uh, liability responsibility to pay uh, for the uh, fire loss. Now, that was kind of a significant decision because it, in effect, put insurance companies uh, on the risk to pay for a lot of the fire losses from the uh, San Francisco earthquake instead of having the uh, policyholders themselves bear that loss. So uh, Howard's right. Who's to say that that kind of background will actually Im- impact what we're dealing with here? But that's that's a good example of how maybe courts change depending upon economic and other circumstances. And we're going to see this. I mean, what has happened uh, immediately is there have been lawsuits filed, numerous cases. One of the most prominent restaurants in California, in Napa Valley, uh, has filed in in Superior Court uh, for insurance insurance claims, claiming that. Uh, under the all-risk policy, and we'll talk about that, and, and the civil authority restrictions. The losses were suffered and are recoverable. Other restaurants have filed suit. Restaurants may be the easiest to imagine in this kind of case. With the background of how uncertain this may be and how important it is, let's talk about what's involved here. What is the first thing as a practical matter? So we started in terms of, of functioning as a practical matter. If you are involved in this kind of business loss, and take a restaurant as an example, what are the first things that the insured should do in terms of dealing with this? Well, what you've got to keep in mind, there are two classic uh, areas of insurance, uh, what's called first party and what's called third party. First party is usually just a straight line, so to speak, between the policyholder and the insurance company. Why third party is is like a triangle. The plaintiff sues the defendant policyholder, and the defendant policyholder tenders the lawsuit to its insurance company to pay defense costs and maybe indemnity in connection with that circumstance. But here, this is a first party situation. I mean, a classic example of first party is the fire cases, which did have that impact uh, many years ago in connection with San Francisco. First party is in many areas, like life policies, accident policies, health policies. And part of your homeowners and auto insurance uh, have first-party situation. But what what should you do in, in these kind of situations? If you represent a restaurant, an airline, a, a, a entertainment industry, a supplier, uh, or an individual who's uh, lost his or her job and things of that nature, well, what you want to do pretty quickly is to get organized and focus on stuff. And you don't want to delay things. Because I mentioned, uh, in these kind of areas, first party, you have to give notice to the insurance company. And notice means you've got to 
in effect, tell them about the problem and outline uh, what your loss is. So first you kind of want to get together the information supporting the loss, documents regarding the monetary situation. Did the employer have to pay uh, the employees for not working because of the situation? Did the employer have to do something else? Did the airline uh, stop flying and things of that nature? So you want to mass the documents and, the, and identifying witnesses that would demonstrate your dollar uh, loss or damages. You also want to get insurance policies, and it's not necessarily so easy to figure out what insurance policy is involved. And you want to make sure that you don't decide what insurance policy is on the risk. Usually it's insurance policy that's in effect in the policy period in question, which should be, for example, now the policy in effect in 2020. Uh, but you don't want to make assumptions about what is covered or what is not covered. Remember, that's a job for the uh, jurists if and when you get to that particular situation. Now, in some, uh, many situations, for example, restaurants and things like that, they would have uh, what is called brokers, in other words, someone who was involved in getting their insurance policies over the years. So you can turn, if there is a, a broker, to have that broker help putting things together. Uh, and you got to keep in mind, it's important to give notice. you got to keep in mind what kind of coverage is this. Is this was what we call occurrence? or is this claims made, uh, all that type of stuff is in there to put together. Again, you don't want to delay, you want to move forward. It's something that's important in this insurance area and every insurance area is what is the language of the policy? What type of policy is it? What kind of risk does it cover? Uh, and remember, a key thing is the insuring clause, because the insuring clause in a policy outlines what the insurance company is arguably responsible for. There's other parts of the insurance policy you have to keep in mind. Is there an endorsement? Endorsements don't happen that often, but they happen reasonably frequently. Endorsements are add-on. In other words, you take a policy, uh, maybe a standard ISO, ISO policy, but add endorsements to, in effect, add-on coverages. A very another important area, and we'll get some examples later on, are what we call the exclusions. Now, an exclusion, in effect, means Although maybe this loss falls within the parameters of the insuring clause, it's excluded because the insurance company has put in exclusions as part of its underwriting of this particular situation. And you want to focus on these particular things. Again, you don't make the decision about what's covered and what's not, but that's what you want to look at. To some extent, I think attorneys have to be careful of not getting wrapped up about making bad faith arguments. Yes, I know bad faith arguments are very tempting, uh, but uh, let's save that uh, down the road a little bit and try to develop the things I've been talking about. Well, let's let's and, talk about let's talk. Pardon me. I just want to focus because you've mentioned insurance policies and the language, and I, I apologize for cutting in. But I think once you've mentioned it, it might be important uh, to talk about uh, those provisions. You know, you mentioned the Supreme Court of California fire case. And of course, historically, uh, what we now know as commercial property insurance policies, the risk coverage grew out of fire insurance. Perils were specifically identified. But over time, what was established as a standard was the all-risk coverage. And the all-risk coverage in co combination with restaurants or other businesses, for example, with business interruption insurance. But let's start first talking about what the all-risk coverage means, because that's where people will usually go first. What, what is required for the all-risk coverage to come into play? Well, as the name implies, all-risk is, is in effect a, a coverage that, that takes care of so-called all-risk. 
But in that area, the devil's in the details. What, what exclusions are there? What's carved out from coverage? Uh, and things like intentional acts, uh, exclusions can be just a handful or they can be very extensive lists. That gets back to the point of you want to look at the policy and try to figure out what is or what is not within the parameters. So you don't want to make an argument on every policy that might be out there. But on the other hand, as I said earlier, you don't want to assume what the answer is. And again, you start off with the jumping off place that Howard mentioned. And we would be spending time talking a lot about commercial business property insurance uh, because that's where a lot of this so-called business interruption BI coverage comes from. And in the and that's, that's the area. That's the area. And when we talk about the initial question that's been raised in a lot of the commentary in the cases is that even for business interruption insurance, the all risk policy contains a requirement of physical damage or loss, often saying direct physical damage or loss. Is that one of the issues even when dealing with if business interruption insurance is in play in dealing with whether the business interruption insurance would, would come in? Yeah, I would say that that's arguably the most important issue because many times, and again, it turns on policy language, but many times uh, the policy, and we're talking about so BI coverage, business interruption, people refer to it as BI, but the key phrase is, quote, direct physical loss of or damage to property. Uh, and, and so you have to focus on that. And, of course, uh, a challenging question is, what is physical loss? Now, if, for example, you have a fire policy and, and the building burns down, it's pretty obvious what, what the direct physical loss is. The fire caused the burning of the building, which was destroyed. But in the COVID area, it's, a little, it's much more challenging to figure out what is the direct physical loss. I know there have been cases that have dealt with this. Are we talking about actual physical loss or loss of function if if the if the business can't operate if it can't function because of what has occurred no one can get access to it is is that an issue of physical loss even if there's no physical damage well you have to show from a policyholder standpoint a, a causal nexus between this physical loss and the loss of income so i mean that is that is a key hurdle in in, in the covid situation uh, you're going to have some challenges from the policyholder standpoint of what is the physical damage and uh, d- did the uh, COVID virus actually physically alter the property in question. Those are going to be challenging situations, uh, much more difficult in the COVID situation as compared to, for example, the fire situation. When we talk about whether COVID affected the, the property. Uh, let's leap ahead once you've mentioned that. Many of these policies contain virus exclusions involving contaminants that would include a, the physical impact of the virus. Is that going to come into play here? Yes. If, if, the, if there's an exclusion of that nature, uh, you're going to certainly see the insurance companies make that argument. Because while the uh, policyholder bar is organizing itself and figuring out uh, what to do and how to approach it, the insurance companies, needless to say, are, are moving forward. And so that's going to be a, a key issue. Does COVID cause physical damage to a business? 
frequently you're not going to have a policy that's going to have COVID coverage. I mean, that would be very unusual, particularly since this whole issue seems to have arisen in the last year or two. Now, of course, there's prior situations, uh, and we can talk about E. coli. There's a case that uh, does E. coli, but but that's that's an important thing to look for what kind of uh, uh, exclusions there are, and, and frequently you'll see that there's an exclusion for a communicable disease. Now, is that what COVID is? That's that's going to be a real challenge. Well, let's talk about this. This issue, of course, has come up in many other contexts in, in terms of business interruption. This is an event that has caused massive business interruption, but there have been other events that cause massive business interruption as well, even without talking about communicable diseases. For example, has this these issues have come up where businesses have had to close because of, of orders involving hurricanes or riots. Have, have there been cases involving business interruption insurance that have come out of those situations? Yeah, there have been a few, but this area doesn't have a very extensive uh, uh, situation. I, I mean, uh, there's a case called SUFI, S-Y-U-F-Y, Enterprises versus Home Insurance. It's a uh, Northern District of California case in 1995, SUFIT Enterprises versus Home Insurance. Uh, there, the court held, this being a federal district court case, they're, they're, they found no coverage for business interruption due to curfews following the Rodney King trial because the loss was not a direct result of damage to or destruction of property, and therefore the insured could not demonstrate the requisite cause, causal link uh, for coverage. Now, that's just one case, federal district court case. That's, you know, just one judge saying something. Uh, but that's an example of a court reaching a conclusion in this particular area. And yes, Howard's right. Uh, there's been things in the past, whether it's a riot or something like this. And later on, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about civil authority coverage and things of that nature. Uh, but, but that's out there. And, and, and keep in mind, this, this applies to a whole host of entertainment. The entertainment world, for example, uh, the L.A. Times had a story just a, two weeks ago. Can insurance bail out Hollywood with filming shut down, studios file claims for coverage? Okay, where does that lead? Uh, it's a little bit easier to uh, think about if you have a riot situation. It's, a, it's much more challenging to think about it when you're dealing with uh, things that are a little bit more amorphous or whatever phrase we want to use but but th- clearly there's a lot look at all the unemployment statistics and things of that nature the layoffs uh, the closing of businesses and all this a lot of potential out there not very much case law but i think maybe we should uh, we may have to think about this though people generally when they think about it think of it all together as business interruption but there's several different causes and types here for example one cause would be Perhaps there was direct infection through COVID at an establishment that caused it to be closed. That would raise an issue before the virus exclusion about whether that was in the all-risk policy. Or the hurricane and the riot cases where there are generalized curfews or orders and the consequences of those uh, cause business loss. I know there were cases uh, in, involving, uh, after 9-11, involving hotels that sought restrictions because of what had happened in travel uh, and, and airline uh, kind of things. And then there are cases where there might be specific prohibitions on the use of of the property. Uh, for example, a restaurant having a COVID infection might be one thing. If it didn't, you couldn't uh, go to that. A generalized order about 
everyone should stay at home uh, might be one thing because it affected the restaurant as a consequence. But a third thing might be very different when there's a specific prohibition on the restaurant functioning. This is not just a consequence of something, but a specific prohibition totally removing the use of the property, denying the entire functional use of the property. Well, certainly there would be more of a direct physical loss in your examples, Howard, if, for example, uh, you could demonstrate that the uh, COVID virus actually got inside, so to speak, the restaurant, and because of that, the restaurant closed down. That's, That's a much easier causation versus people didn't come to the restaurant because they had to stay home or people didn't come to the restaurant because they were afraid of of the covid virus uh, again like so much of litigation it depends upon the facts and the situation but those are very good distinctions to keep in mind well let's talk about those distinctions in context of something you mentioned which is this the the civil authority issue there there's a separate issue even if once you once you're within the oil risk policy, a separate issue of whether governmental orders, so-called civil authority, uh, which is prohibited use of the property, uh, comes within the policy. And you've mentioned, tell you know, restrictions on people going out, generalized shelter at home restrictions. But suppose again, we're talking hypothetically, without reference to any particular case. But we also know there have been orders, governmental orders entered for non-essential businesses to remain closed. Not just the case of people's unwillingness to go because of a generalized condition, but a specific government order to restaurant or retail establishment that says it is now illegal for you to be open. Does that raise a different set of issues aside from people's general unwillingness to go to to the establishment? I'd say there's no doubt about that. And what's an essential business? And as you can see, from what's happening in, the, uh, in various parts of the com- uh, country, there's there's different views on what's essential and what's not. It would be uh, an easier situation if the government, uh, in effect, said you have to close this particular restaurant because of what happened uh, two weeks ago versus the general situation. Again, it, it, a lot of this turns on the factual uh, scenario. It, it, remember, you get back to the question of was there a direct, physical damage. And uh, that's what a lot of policies say. Uh, like many things in the insurance world, it's inter- you can think that, but it's hard sometimes to actually prove what's happened. But yes, that's going to be an important issue in, in many of these situations. But you may not have a case, clearly if you had a case where X establishment, there was a governmental order to close X establishment. But we know what's happened, for example, in California, is that there have been lists of essential businesses with governmental orders that if you're not on the list, if you're a non-essential business, you must close. And a restaurant is a case of that. Certain retail establishments are a case of that. So let's talk about it in that context, that you've got a governmental order that didn't specifically apply to an individual place, but generally established a prohibition on businesses of that type remaining open and 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 serving and and serving the public. There's no question I guess at that point that there's been significant economic loss. This is not an issue of whether there's been economic loss or the amount of the damages. The issue would turn on whether there had been the policy say direct physical loss or damage. There are two words, loss or damage in the all risk policy. Is there a difference 
between loss and damage? Well, I think in the law, there there often is a difference between loss or damage. But I think frequently people uh, in litigation, uh, they, they, they kind of merge. Damages is more in connection with actual monetary situation, why loss is sometimes a little more difficult to define. I mean, how do you define loss of customers coming and things of that nature versus damages, money that you had to pay out? I don't think that's the main challenge. The main challenge is the language that it covers direct physical loss or damage. What's direct and what's physical? Keeping in mind, the the authorities out there say there must be a causal nexus between that direct physical loss or damage and the loss of the income or whatever the damage is, monetary or otherwise, it's there. That That's the real challenge, particularly in the, in the COVID area. You know, I, I think that's right. I think that's the absolute correct analysis. And when I was talking about, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't so clear about it, loss or damage, I wasn't talking about, what I really wanted to focus on was the difference between physical loss and physical damage. Physical damage, we yep. understand. It's like a fire. The question that I think the courts are going to have to wrestle with, which may be analogous to the Supreme Court of California wrestling with earthquakes and fires, has to do with whether there is a difference between physical loss and physical damage. They're not simply redundant. And that physical loss no. encompasses physical loss of function. You can't use the physical premises for the function that they were intended to be used. I think that's where the argument is I think, that, I think that's a very good analysis because remember the classic uh, contract analysis. If you have the word or between loss or damage, then loss has to be something different than damage, and conversely, damage is different from loss. So I think that's, that's a good way of doing it. I, I think a real battleground for policyholders, does the, does the virus actually physically altered the business properties. How are you going to prove physical damage and how are you going to direct? What does that mean? And as we talked earlier, there's not a lot of case law on this. Uh, obviously, the California Supreme Court in 1909 didn't deal with that type of issues. Uh, there's a case called Fresh Express, 199 Calap 4th, 1038, 199 Calap 4th, 1038, that dealt with E. coli. Uh, and then the court denied, remember this is a District Court of Appeal decision in the year 2011, so it's reasonably recent. The court rejected a policy that was claimed for business loss, uh, even though the FDA said there was potential E. coli in spinach, and 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 there was argued, according to the policyholder, a subsequent reduction in the earnings, because the court said there was no casual link or nexus between the business loss and the event covered by the policy. Insurance company, this is probably, uh, this Fresh Express may be the, one of the more analogous cases out there. And needless to say, if you're a policyholder attorney, you're, you're going to see arguments like that. Uh, it, this, is, this is hard to say. E. coli is one thing in spinach versus the, the uh, COVID virus. Uh, it, it's a it's a challenge, Howard. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I want to focus back on this on the uh, what I think the argument is going to turn on is the loss of function. Uh, you, I had just to mention a personal note. I had uh, dealt with a case under marine insurance, uh, which involves some of the same issues of physical loss about whether the loss of specific software, uh, which was had, had caused the kind of physical loss 
because it, it diminished, the, not just diminished, it ended the function of very expensive uh, other things to work. It wasn't just what the cost was of replacing the software, but the loss of income because of the loss of software. And the case turned on that issue of whether physical loss referred to function or to physical harm. And it wasn't that the case hinged on whether hurting software, changing the electrons amounted to physical harm. It's whether it turned on function or physical harm. And in the end, uh, there was, it did not go to trial, uh, but, I, but, but in the end, that became the very significant issue that involved the resolution of the case. So I think we have to separate out. I think trying to make the argument that the virus infected uh, a particular space is, is, is difficult and might very well be covered by a virus exclusion. But I think where this is going to go is whether since loss and damage will be argued to not be treated as redundant, loss is different than the physical damage. So if physical loss is different than physical damage, what is the difference? Clearly, physical damage requires the building be harmed, you know, there be a fire, there be a physical change to the structure. But if that is physical damage, what is the physical loss that might be different than physical damage? And the argument will be made, and it's turned up in other cases, other different kinds of cases involving warranty, merchantability, commercial issues, is that a key element of loss is loss of function. And I think ultimately, that is where these cases are going to go. We'll talk about the specifics of, of the civil authority, for example. But I think that's where these cases are going to go. Does the word loss in the all-risk policy, physical loss, put it at its best, direct physical loss, because loss must mean something different than damage. What kind of physical loss is different than physical damage? And the argument will be made that the loss that is different from physical damage is loss of function. And that that's the argument that will be made to satisfy the direct physical loss requirement of the all-risk policy before you get to the other business interruption issues. So you're, you're sitting on the court. I'm going to do, do something terrible to you. You're now sitting on the court. You're the judge deciding this. The policyholder says, says look, Loss has got to be different than damage, loss of function. There is a specific order closing this kind of establishment. I lost my function completely. How do you, without telling us how you decide, what goes through your mind as you think about how you'd resolve that particular issue? Well, uh, I, I think you make a good argument in this perspective of there's a difference between loss and damage. Uh, and, and certainly damage sounds like something more tangible uh, like, for example, a fire destroying the building or whatever, why loss can be more ephemeral and, and less specific. So if, if I were a judge deciding this, Howard, and you were making that argument, I'm saying that's an interesting argument. Please tell me the case law that supports your position. Because uh, when, you're when you're making these decisions, uh, particularly in your trial court judge, your your job is not to uh, tell everybody what the law is. Your Your job is to take the law as stated uh, and, and try to apply it to this particular situation. Uh, it's infrequent that, that you, you don't have a pretty good connection between these two, but I think this is a situation where it's going to be difficult to easily think about it. 
So if you're a policyholder attorney, the, 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 the case law that I've been talking about, and there's only a couple of other cases we can talk about later in California, really aren't too helpful. So this is an example of something if a judge says, like I uh, hypothesize, tell me, counsel, the case law that supports your position, because as a judge, you want something to support what you're going to do. You just don't want to kind of say, well, the law is ABC. You want some idea of what the law should be. And frequently as a as L.A. Superior Court judge, I, I wouldn't be concerned too much about what the Supreme Court of Kansas or Illinois or Florida said about a particular issue. But if it was, if there wasn't too much California law on it, and I had a distinction that you hear like for loss versus damage, loss being less tangible situation, then I would want to see what case law is there out there. There's going to be a case law out there, but it won't be completely analysis to COVID. So that's why... Uh, Trial court judges are going to really be struggling with these uh, battles over the next few years. Okay. And, uh, as, and as Howard and I were talking about, the trouble with this kind of situation is you're not going to get any really clear appellate authority for at least, I would think, at least two years, if not four or six or something like that. Well, let's assume, let's assume, I understand, let's assume there were a governor of California that had, had the wisdom to appoint you to the Supreme Court of California. <laughs> so now you are sitting on the Supreme Court and... You've got to write the draft here of the analysis for the court. If, if you're not chief justice, the chief justice has asked you to do that. So you're not technically bound. You're not a trial court judge now saying, what does the president say? You've got to decide this case in the context of what's happened with COVID. The argument is made that loss means loss of function, where there's been a specific prohibition on the kind of establishment being opening. Again, without telling me how you decide, what is it that goes through your mind? What would you look to? And if you're willing to say how you decide, that's fine. I don't want to put you on the spot that way. But just a sense of how how a judge, an experienced judge, would think through this kind of issue. And you're now on the well, Supreme I, Court, I, so you're not bound. You're not bound by the Sure. Person. Well, I, I think first you look at uh, authority in California and the... Uh, 1909 case we're talking about would be an example of the court maybe thinking outside of the box. I, I think there's nothing wrong with looking at what other courts in other states are doing. Uh, and an issue like this, what does the, the policy language mean and where it might go? You do get into uh, issues regarding underwriting issues and how policies are drafted and things of that nature. Uh, that's the kind of stuff you look at. You, you can, and I, I think it's true, some jurists, even on the California Supreme Court, just, just think to themselves, well, I, I think the answer is this, and so I'm going to get there. I, I, I think most jurists won't do that, so uh, it will be more of that type of analysis. And, and it's hard to say, and I think you make a very good point, that that uh, loss has to be different than damage, so therefore you look at it more generally. For, so, for example, does this intangible loss did the COVID actually physically contaminate the property in such a fashion as to as to make the property lose its function? And these restaurants in Napa Valley are a good example of that. I think that's the kind of analysis it would be would happen, and it's difficult to predict where that's going to go. That's what I would think about. Okay, you had mentioned some other California cases that you thought were relevant here. I think. Uh, do you want to you want to just mention them for a moment so we sure we can... sure there, there's a case called Pacific Coast Engineering. Uh, it's nine Calap third two seventy nine Calap third two seventy. There and this is a 1970 DCA case, so quite a while ago. Uh, found that the property policy 
only provides BI coverage for losses directly resulting from interruption of the operations at the business, not merely from the interruption of some work being done at that location. Uh, uh, in other words, a more permanent interruption versus a more so-called temporary. Uh, that might apply to some of these restaurants and uh and, and and remember, you you got other businesses. You got movie theaters, not just restaurants. You have a whole panoply of businesses that ha- have, in effect, been shut down. That's the case, albeit decided in 1970. And and we've kind of looked at this. And I think I flag this Fresh Express case, the the home insurance case, and the Pacific Coast case. That's what we seem to have been able to find. California authority, and that gets back to the point I made earlier, then I think many judges would be willing to look at what is the Supreme Court of Illinois doing, what is the Supreme Court of Florida doing, what is the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. That's the kind of analysis. This, this, you know, a lack of, of case law authority, I think, benefits policyholder attorneys because it gives you a more flexibility in making so-called big-picture uh, policy-type arguments and analogies and things of that nature. While insurance companies usually are benefited more in these kind of uh, legal battles, and let's face it, these are essentially questions of law usually, uh, and that to look at. So uh, you're you're not writing on a clean slate, but you're writing on a slate that doesn't have a lot of uh, writing on it. So that's the challenge, but, but the opportunity, too. Well, we've been talking about how this ultimately is resolved. What are the legal arguments but as you've mentioned, for this to go through the whole process, we've talked about the Supreme Court of California, but based on timing that we're very familiar with, uh, we're talking about cases not getting out of the uh, trial courts, especially we'll talk about the impact of delay. But even if we look about cases not getting out of the trial courts for at least 18 months to two years, and then a, a district court of appeal process, and then even if the Supreme Court were to grant a petition for hearing, uh, you're talking about anywhere between four to seven years in the normal course before the very complex issues we've been talking about are resolved. So let's talk about what happens right now in terms of how attorneys handle this and what's at stake. I mean, the restaurants that have closed need something now. Uh, the defendants are running some extraordinary, they, be, they may be running risks. Uh, are there circumstances, for example, as we balance risks, where uh, does prejudgment interest play any role here, for example, in, in balancing risks is a question we, we should think about. But let's talk about how it plays out now. What's going to happen in a circumstance in which we have these massive losses, uh, the uncertain law, or at least the complex law, even if you think it is certain, it's certainly complex. We already know that plaintiff's lawyers are gathering and meeting and working out collaborative strategy, and thousands of cases will be filed. Insurance company and defense lawyers are meeting, working out collaborative strategy. And you have all this occurring during this period of, of huge loss, and added on to that is this trial court delay. Let's, let's think through what now can happen to help people. How, do, how does a plaintiff's lawyer, defense lawyer, now advise clients in terms of dealing with this uncertain situation, in terms of a realistic resolution or response? Well, I mean, there are several options, and it's hard to predict what's going to be helpful. I mean, from a policyholder standpoint, you can file your claim, and as I talked earlier, you certainly want to give put the insurance company on notice 
of what your claim is, and you, and it's a good idea to have backup of what your damages or losses are and things of that nature. In some circumstances, the insurance company might be willing to, in effect, sit down and and try to resolve the issue. The courts aren't going to have a lot of mandatory settlement conferences for a while, uh, so there's the option of the direct dealing between the policyholder and the insurance company or going through an ADR-type situation to try to uh, have a, a, a particular conference. The reality is, uh, as we all know, mainly due to constitutional questions, criminal cases are going to have priority over civil cases, so uh, you're not going to get any summary judgment uh, rulings, uh, I would suspect, for at least six months, if not nine or more, from even trial court judges on these issues. So I guess your first route is to see if the insurance company will sit down and talk to you. Many of them probably won't because often insurance companies, uh, the longer it, g- it goes, in effect, the better it is. Howard just mentioned prejudgment interest. Uh, if you're an attorney in this area, keep in mind that California law has been a lot of activity about prejudgment interest. In contract cases, as I recall, it's 10%, uh, and in uh, negligence cases, it's something like 7%. And if it's different states, it's different numbers. But that's an economic consequence that can have an impact to maybe have to maybe make the uh, insurance companies think about what they want to do. And, and, and the argument doesn't always have to be against insurance companies. Maybe there are other potential defendants to keep in mind. Uh, I don't know if you want to spend a lot of time on that, but particularly uh, as a a, uh, business attorney. But uh, sometimes that's uh, a particular situation. But I I don't think you're going to get any meaningful trial court uh, answers uh, uh, for rulings or orders until uh, next year. I I mean, that's what the situation is. I think that's reality, but let me ask you about that. You mentioned summary judgment. What we've talked about here is really a pure legal issue. I mean, there should be no dispute. Uh, there are always disputes over everything. I understand that. We've both been in the, in the trenches on this. But the essential issue about whether the loss of function, let's say there's a restaurant that's been closed because of its, it's deemed non-essential and a specific order to close, and it has losses, and the argument is, does this fall within the all-risk uh, direct physical loss issue? That's a pure legal issue. In our system, why can't that, as an issue of partial summary judgment, be brought on stipulation to a trial court judge to be decided as soon as possible? Well, it, it, yeah, that that that's certainly a route to do it. Uh, so unless you have a situation where the virus itself actually was inside the restaurant, so you have a better physical argument. If you have the uh, so-called shutdown-type orders, yeah, you can do that, but just keep in mind what the judicial system's going to do. Uh, like I said, they're going to do criminal cases and all this, so the idea that there's going to be MSJ situations, I, I don't think that's going to happen, uh, maybe occasionally, but not any significant number until at the earliest uh, almost a year from now. Well, but this is a challenge for the judicial system as well. I mean, no doubt about that. The the civil court judges, for example, are not going to be involved in the issues about criminal trial defendants uh, having to be physically present or obtaining jury trials or speedy trial acts. The civil court judges will now find uh, that there are enormous delays because of the absence of jury trials. But everything that doesn't involve witness credibility uh, that can be decided by a judge can be procedurally accelerated 
by the court if it wishes to, this, can't it? Well, I, I mean, yes, that's true. But it, I can remember I was a judge at the time when the three strikes uh, situation was happening. Uh, actually, it really started before I became a judge in 2005. And there was a point in time, because of the three strikes issue, that some civil judges in Moss, the main civil litigation courthouse in Los Angeles, were in effect became uh, trying criminal cases. So, I, I mean, that, that there's that potential out there. Uh, I don't know what the judicial system is going to do. They have a lot of challenges. Remember, it's just not criminal cases and civil cases. You have dependency cases. You have a variety of cases. So there's there's a lot of different balls in the air in this regard. So, uh, I mean, it's a good idea from a policyholder standpoint to try to get this uh, in effect into the MSJ, MSA procedure, but uh, there are going to be challenges there. But, 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 I mean, that in many respects, unless you can get the other side – usually the insurance company to sit down and talk about a resolution. That's your option. Well, it, it's, um, you know, we're talking about functioning in this environment. The truth of the matter is, as you said, you've, you've been involved both for, for insurance, for policyholders, and, and for insurance companies. And so no one's at blame here. I mean, this has occur, occurred. So we cannot talk about this in terms of, a, of, of, claim, of putting the blame on anyone in terms of its effect on, on the judicial system. But if we look at the effect with the effect of enormous delay uh, and the effect of the complexity in the context of enormous delay, but just focus on delay, we know that delay itself strategically generally favors one side over another, so to speak. And because cases usually only settle, as you know, the greatest incentive to settle, you know better than I do, is, is, is a trial date. So doesn't the judicial system have to deal with this issue, given the fact that this is a consequence? Does the judicial system have to grapple with how procedurally it deals with this uh, uh, to, to deal with the issue of, of delay here? Oh, I think that's true. I mean, as those of you who have been uh, reading uh, legal articles, the Judicial Council of California the, the, uh, and the governor has given the Judicial Council even more authority over the court situation. They could, in effect, uh, adopt guidelines about uh, handling uh, COVID cases differently than a standard breach of contract case or a standard automobile accident case or something like that. And, and that could that could happen. I haven't seen any of that in the uh, in the media so far because there are obviously more impressing issues in connection with what are you going to do about uh, uh, this criminal procedure, what about that criminal procedure, and things of that nature. But but that that's certainly a certain possible. Keep in mind, there are courts, particularly in the metropolitan areas, that have what they call complex civil courts, and those courts arguably could be turned into situation to address these COVID-type issues. That, I mean, that's another possibility. No doubt about that. So the system, ha- for example, I, some lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers, have suggested uh, that in order to deal with the issue of allocating risk and to get the complex issues uh, uh, resolved as quickly as possible, that after the complaint is answered, uh, it's that issue, uh, that the motion for summary judgment be filed immediately, a partial motion for summary judgment be filed immediately purely on the legal issue, on specified legal issues uh, that are at stake in the case as a way of at least establishing elements of risk 
that might lead to earlier settlement. That may very well happen, and the courts may have to grapple with that when, when that happens, uh, even if they're physically closed. Is, isn't that one thing that may happen here? Oh, it certainly could. There's, it, like, there's going to be a lot of challenges for just our society in general, obviously, but also uh, the aspect of the courts and things of that nature. Yes, I think that's going to happen. And, and, and keep in mind, although we're, we are, both Howard and I are in the ADR world, I think the ADR world is going to have uh, 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 a slice of the, the pie, so to speak, in this regard, because that is an option that might might make sense in certain cases. Well, let's talk about that. As, as you say, we, we, we both do this. And, uh, of course, one thing that has been less affected here uh, than other things are mediations because an increasing number of mediations are being done uh, purely online. So it, it, often people seek early resolution of some cases in terms of dealing with costs and risks. Is there a role here in attempting to, to provide mechanisms for early resolution? And do you think it could be successful? Is there a reason for people involved in individual cases where the losses are great and uncertain and where some money today might mean a great deal more to a client than a great deal of money later. Is there a role here for an early intervention in the ADR world to attempt to resolve many of some of these cases anyway? I, I think that's true. I, it will turn on some defendants, like in regular litigation, are more willing to talk settlement than others. Uh, these are challenging times with, with different approaches. And just looking at insurance companies, some insurance companies will give more weight to trying to resolve things earlier instead of later, while other insurance companies will have other points of view. But but it is, a, 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 let's face it, there's a lot of uncertainties out there. We talked about the judicial system and what it can do and what the limitations are. Same thing applies to ADR. A lot of it depends on what what people want to do. Now, now the California Department of Insurance is kind of getting involved in this. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, they issued guidelines to help businesses uh, in, in coverage situations, particularly BI. So, I mean, there is the uh, aspect of maybe the the government stepping into this uh, through the Department of Insurance, through the Attorney General, or something like that. Uh, it, that's hard to predict, but it, it was interesting, in my mind at least, that the that the Department of Insurance would issue these guidelines, uh, which allegedly offer to businesses uh, some analysis of whether they're entitled to BI coverage. Uh, so, you know, state government outside the judicial system may be playing a role that's difficult to predict because it's doesn't really happen in too many areas, but that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, that it was issued by the Department of Insurance on March 26th. It's on the a website, and it's certainly something that uh, should be looked at by everyone. But in the end, when we talk about this situation, doesn't everyone have to do, and that's going to be the difficult part here, and where I think experienced people play such a role, do a real analysis of the risks, uh, the, the risk by policyholders making claims that they may recover nothing because of the cases that have interpreted the direct physical loss or damage problem and the virus exclusion. Uh, but there's also a risk. There always is some level of risk uh, on the other side about the ultimate outcome. And so uh, one of the things that uh, may have to be looked at very carefully here uh, by counsel and also by neutrals is what are the levels of risk that are involved 
because at some point it's the analysis of levels of risk uh, that finally lead uh, to resolution. And is that not, in terms of case evaluation, uh, a risk evaluation, a separate role, uh, for example, that ADR may play here in helping people estimate what is what is really at risk? Oh, I, I think that's true. Let's face it, insurance really is about risk. Yeah. Remember what insurance is. Insurance is to take several people with the same concerns, for example, life insurance, issue policies to individuals, and then, in effect, pool all those individuals to take the risk of happening to any particular one rather than that particular individual taking his or her risk about whether they're going to have premature death or something like that. Now, that's an easier situation than when we're talking about here, but, but, but the magnitude of, of, of what's happening now, and, and those of us who have been around for a while, I mean, this is very different from anything else. Yeah, yeah the magnitude of the risk is clearly there. You can go back to the pollution exclusions, uh, which really started about 20, 25 years ago, when there was a big emphasis on on pollution and things of that nature, it took a long time for the system to, in effect, work out uh, pollution exclusions. But it happened. You can you can that's not a, a precise analogy, but but it's a better analogy than most other things we're talking about. So that 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 can happen. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. The question is, how will it happen, and when will it happen? Well, thank you so much. We I want to thank you so much, Judge Heisman, for for sharing your experience, wisdom, and, and thoughts here. This is obviously a critical issue. This is the first of two podcasts on insurance issues. In this hour, we have focused on business insurance, but there are other issues and other policies that come into play, some uh, general CGL policy issues, directors and officers insurance, uh, other items involving labor issues. There are a whole range of other insurance issues that may come into play here in the midst of this extraordinary situation. And we shall look at those insurance issues with Judge Heisman in the second of the two podcasts that we're doing on insurance issues. I thank all of you for listening. Thank Judge Heisman for being with us. 